So we're talking about language. Yes, this came out of a free-flowing conversation that I, I loved for its focusing nature. Um, it was so uh, wide open and yet very present to what exactly was coming up in both of us creatively. Um, and I, it's taken me some time since our last conversation to uh, crystallize and clarify what was being activated in me, um, which is itself a focusing kind of process that I really appreciate. Uh, and I realized that I actually have very strong feelings about an aspect of this that I had been um, tempering uh, for sort of going along to get along, uh, not with you, but in the world. And it has to do with the, the, it has to do with the use of language. It has to do with the whole sort of postmodern deconstruction of uh, language and truth and the idea that there, there is no, uh, this, it's all perception and there is no truth and this, this table is not a table. <clears throat> uh, and how far our culture is willing to go with that, uh, in the, especially in the current socio-political scene of alternative facts and whether or not truth matters and all that. And in the middle of this pond, I want to plop the pebble of something that Jendlin has proposed and that I think is actually very valuable, the idea that we use words um, in non-dictionary ways to mean whatever we need them to mean when we are trying to express what comes from the body, from the body-mind whole self, uh, when we focus. Yeah, yeah. So we use words, um, not necessarily in a literal dictionary meaning, to express what we need to express. That's exactly right. And... In one sense, you could say that's always been true because the dictionary word is just capturing what most people have most recently meant with the word, not a, a, a meaning that somehow exists like a table, if a table exists, and is a fixed thing. Uh, that's simply true of how language works. In addition, there is there are all the structures or uses of language that we can call metaphor, simile, um, analogy, uh, and then the uses of those things in poetry. You and I were talking the last time we were together about how um, in certain contexts, we give ourselves more permission to use words more fluidly. Mm -hmm. And I made that point about, about poetry. So that um, elasticity in language exists 
and can be talked about without reference to focusing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm hearing that sense of um, uh, there's one broad area in which we say that words exist uh, to directly point to some things that exist, like a table. And of course, that's um, presupposing that things do exist independently and words also exist. And there's that one-to-one -one correspondence between the word and the object. Um, and then there's that other form of language in which language itself creates a reality. And that's in poetic language where the use of words um, creates a certain mood, a certain, you know, communicates a certain world and a certain experience. Yes. <coughs> Excuse me. I would say that <coughs> what you've just said about poetry is true in all uses of language. It's just that we are, I think, less likely to be surprised when a word in a poem doesn't point so directly to what it says in the dictionary, then we are uh, in prose or everyday conversation because our expectations for the genre are more, mm -hmm. uh, are broader, let's say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a few sort of <laughs> crevasses on this great big glacier that I think are dangerous. And I'm not even counting the absolutely quotidian, daily, normal uh, difficulties that we all encounter when what I mean when I say something is not what you understand when you hear it. That's just so normal. We live with that every day. It needs to be addressed, but I don't think of it as a special problem. The other special problems that I'm trying to put my finger on now uh, come from in most simply really imprecise language and then influential like deliberately influential language that casts that brings with it um, implications that are meant to are meant to have an impact this is very gray because this is true also of everyday speech the example that i always give is was our military in, intervention in iraq a liberation or an invasion how you hear that story is going to depend very much on on which word you choose and which word you hear when other people choose it 
So it's There's, a framing. You're ta- a we're framing. talking about a framing yeah. um, that um, as we choose words uh, or use words by default, uh, there is some degree of framing of the situation through which we see it. Right. I, I was raised to value precision in language, not to be... Um, pedantic about it, but to care about subtext and to care about inference and to pick wisely, if possible, so as to take responsibility for what I was saying. And when I look back over my lifetime, I can think of moments where I had a real flash of horror or outrage uh, because of uh, not sloppy use of language, but sloppy use of language that then had a social impact. I'm remembering um, uh, uh, an acquaintance. We were in graduate school, and everybody was leaving their their offices open, and somebody's stolen uh, wallet was stolen, and uh, the woman whose wallet was stolen wanted to point, understandably, to the idea that not only was she missing her wallet, but she felt that her space had been invaded. And that that's a, an additional and very powerful um, part of her experience, which I, with which I sympathized. But she said, it's like I was raped. And I was outraged. I said, uh, no, it's not. That, uh, that undermines our empathy for the people who really have been. And that, that's the kind of framing that I, I react to because it has a ripple effect on how we care for each other as human beings. Oh. I, of course, uh, I, I, I failed in that moment to take good care of her because a better use of language by me in that moment would be to say, I hear you choosing words to point to a sense of having been invaded, you know, that that needed to be yeah. honored and respected by me. And I only reacted to the, what I saw as hyperbole. And I was actually reacting to what I considered to be the danger of that mm-hmm. hyperbole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's, a, that's a very beautiful example. Um, the situation there is a situation where there is intense emotion. We're not talking about using words to describe, um, oh, uh, this is blue versus this is red. But this is something that's really deeply affecting both participants, uh, the woman whose wallet was taken, but your reaction to her, and then your reaction to your reaction. And and so um, so we're talking about language in a relational context, and um, and uh, relating to how we relate to each other. Beautifully put, and and thank you for pointing that out because this is where it gets. Um, I would say this is this is why it matters. This is where it gets significant and important. Um, And this leads me, this helps me articulate why I worry 
about the aspects of this topic that relate to focusing. Um, to put it crudely, really, the only word, uh, I think a lot of people don't understand what Eugene Genlin meant about a felt sense. And I think the word, the phrase, I have heard it give rise to expressions like, well, my felt sense tells me I should go to this movie and not that movie or um, that we should, or that you should, or that the right thing is. And it scares me because it's awfully close to, uh, you know, if, if a head of state says, uh, the voice of God told me we should go to war, or, um, You know, I use the phrase voices, the voice, the voice, voices within us. And I'm scared by the difference. I do not want to be somebody who says, well, the voices in my head tell me it's a good idea to shoot you or the voices in my head, you know, the phrase voices in my head or voices in my body can point either towards something subtle and deep and worthy of um, time and respect and interested curiosity or the very same phrase can point to madness, uh, impulsiveness, thoughtlessness, um, crazy talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, I want to point something out that uh, yeah. actually um, you're using different words in both cases and this is a conversation where we started talking about language and about how language frames something mm -hmm. um, and um, in one instance you're saying um, something about people who say my felt sense tells me too mm -hmm. so and so um, you equate it with God tells me too and so there's one only one authority that presents one and only one path. But then the other situation that you describe is you say, I hear voices, okay, that say. And so the simple difference between one voice, whether it's the voice of the felt sense or the voice of God that is the one and only direction, but the awareness that there can be many voices is a totally different situation. Even if you hear only one voice, but you're aware that there are several voices, then it becomes something where, you know, our executive capacity is about sorting out 
which of the voices to hear and hearing the voices as informants, you know, and things to be questioned as opposed to just followed blindly. What a brilliant um, uh, pointing to the singular versus the plural. Um, that's very powerful. Uh, yeah. Let's, uh, let's, let's, I want to really absorb that. Um, <clears throat> while that gestates for me, I want to point to the other um, sort of danger point. I think it's simultaneously incredibly powerful to recognize that words only mean what we mean them to mean when we say them. Yeah. And uh, it's scary to me to when we as a culture allow that, allow an extrapolation from that to the world of alternative facts and there is no truth. Um, yeah, yeah. So let, let's, we st you started with something that says word only mean what we mean them to mean. Right. And it make a difference between that and alternate facts uh, and, uh, you know, complete. So, so do you want to say a little bit more about words only mean what we mean them to mean? Well, after reading uh, a few books, uh, Deborah Tannen's work in particular about sociolinguistics and how language impacts uh, how we attempt to communicate with each other, uh, my shorthand, and honestly, I can't remember whether Deborah Tannen said this in so many words or whether it's mine. Um, I, I, if it's hers, I want to give proper, proper uh, do to her. My takeaway is that when you say something to me, I don't necessarily hear what you meant. I hear what I would have meant if I had said that. And really living with that knowledge has uh, changed and I would say very much enhanced my life because it has led me to be much quicker to check to check whether what I think I have just heard is what you meant for me to hear. Mm. So it's a little bit the, I mean, we're talking about the opposite of words only mean uh, what we intend them to mean. Words only mean what the recipient means them to mean. <laughs> In the relational context, that is, that is one of the, um, hurdles, let's say, no. to real connection. In fact, there's a line, I think I quoted this to you before, I've seen it attributed to George Bernard Shaw, but then that was debunked. So I don't know if we know whoever said this, that the chief problem with communication is the belief that it has taken place. <laughs> 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 you know, you say something, I get something, 
I go off happily and take action or <clears throat> come to a conclusion or make a judgment or have a belief based on what I think you said. And the, the first domino to fall in a sequence that can get us pretty far from where we mean to be is my assumption that I have heard you correctly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so, so maybe yeah. that's a moment to, to put... Uh, focusing in context um, and to say that what we do with focusing is actually very much paying attention to that. Um, when we listen to somebody, we don't assume that because we use, they use words that mean something to us, we're necessarily understanding what they mean. And so there is um, kind of a trial and error to see if what we understand is what they mean, if we're here is what they mean. But also when we are in the process of focusing, that we don't stop at the immediate meaning of a word, but we keep asking ourselves, you know, well, you know, let's go a little deeper. Let's not just end there. Having a word does not mean we capture right. the meaning we have, but we go a little bit deeper to see what else there might be. Yes, and that's one of the things that's so enriching and, and brilliant about it as a process. There's something else that you're bringing to mind, which is that in a focusing partnership, if I am the focuser and you are my companion, um, uh, you may not have the faintest clue what I meant by something that I just said, but you don't even need to. And in reflecting it back to me as my companion, at least in the several of the modes of or styles of focusing that I've practiced, you are mirroring to me what I have just said so that I can check whether that hits the spot for me. And furthermore, it may not even be words. It may be a sound or it may be a gesture or it may be a movement. Um, <clears throat> and you don't have to get it at all, so much so that people can focus in language. You know, you could be speaking Chinese and I could be speaking English and we can focus uh, because I don't need to get it. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're making here the difference between... Uh, focusing in a pure way right. uh, and that can be used in uh, uh, in uh, either in therapy or peer-to-peer -peer, um, from, say, a focusing conversation where it's more of an exchange and we are trying to understand each other, but we use focusing as a tool for inner clarification and clarification between us of, um, of what we mean. So there where the intent is actually to know what it is right. that we're talking about. Right. And that points, what you just said, points to another key sort of fork in the road in communication. <laughs> when there's a conversation between two people, do they really want to understand each other? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in a focusing communication that's identified as such, you have a better chance that both parties have consciously committed to wanting to understand each other. 
Um, and they probably have reason to trust that there will be time to be heard as well as to hear. I think in everyday communication, you get into the most trouble when you have two people communicating with each other, both of whom desperately want to be heard. Because somebody has to put aside their desire to be heard in order to hear, to break the gridlock that happens between two people who are so longing to be heard that neither one of them is available to do any hearing. So these are the factors that go into um, you know let's call it successful communication in which case we have to define what we mean by success <laughs> which in my book means that both people have heard and are heard. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is which is frankly rare. And one of the I think one of the pitfalls is that we fall into when there's conflict or partisanship or um, too much unmet need is sort of the demand um, it doesn't matter what you think, uh, you should just do what I say, or, well, it doesn't matter that I just said that my computer is not resting on a table, but it's resting on the back of a whale, uh, because um, uh, what I mean by whale is, uh, you know, round and made of wood. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that's, that's really nice. I think... Um, what you're pointing out is that there are so many different layers in communication and there are so many layers to being a human being. Um, and we have, when we're in conversation, we tend to oversimplify and have a model of conversation where what's happening is content is exchanged. And we're reasoning as if we're two computers uh, sending each other content and um, analyzing or responding to content. But just uh, what you're describing is that there are many layers, and so we cannot deal with conversation when we just think of one layer. Okay. And the more we're able to go onto the many layers, um, you know, the emotional content, for instance, a sense of I need to be heard and you need to be heard. And we have not addressed the sense of safety and trust that right. makes us, you know, alternate. Right. Um, we have, uh, you know, possible confusion as to what we mean, possible inner confusion, all of these many different layers. Right. Yes, you're pointing to... Um, <laughs> I'm just going to pick up one stitch of what you said, which is that <coughs> in conversation and in focusing, as the conversation proceeds, if we're lucky, <coughs> we have the opportunity to get clearer ourselves, within ourselves, 
never mind the question of what gets communicated to the other person. You know, very often, <laughs> you know, it takes a bunch of passes to get clear, even about a perfectly ordinary uh, content exchange. There, there's so many possibilities for misunderstanding. <clears throat> and then when it finally gets clear, uh, the recipient can easily say, well, why didn't you say that before? And one possible answer is, I did, but we didn't get it. And the other, poss another, another of many possibilities is, I didn't know I was saying that until just now. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, never mind the, oh, infinite possibilities for misunderstanding. <clears throat> I read a, an article in the Times just yesterday, I think it was, or the day before, the, the, the longest to go, about um, trouble on the campus at the University of Wisconsin, uh, ra uh, uh, racial tension. <clears throat> and somebody put up a sign, I'm not going to quote this correctly, there's another problem with communication, but it was something to the effect of, um, <clears throat> Black students aren't welcome at the University of Wisconsin. And the initial reaction by the administration and by the people who read it was, what an unspeakably horribly racist thing to post. Mm. We need to find the white racist who, or the non-black racist who uh, posted this. And then it turned out that it was an African-American student complaining that this appears to be the case rather than advocating that this should be the case. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. a gorgeous example. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it should be that, mm -hmm. quote, versus this appears to be the case and it's wrong. Yeah, the sad opposite. truth is, yeah. The sad truth is. Opposite, absolutely opposite. Um, mm. Classic example. Yeah. Yeah. But so, so what we're talking about here is um, in a in a conversation, in a dialogue of two people, as opposed to, of course, the the, the complex layers that might magnify when we're talking about a whole social thing as a whole university, you know. Right. Um, in a dialogue of two people where there's already a lot of layers mm -hmm. and we're talking about the layers of language, but also the emotional layers, the inner, the interpersonal, um, that um, a lot of the conversation itself is about paying attention to the sense of, uh, am I clear in myself about mm. what I'm saying? Am I clear right. in myself about what I'm hearing? Mm. And are we clear um, between each other mm. about that? Mm -hmm. And not with a sense that, um, you know, I have to make it clear. Right. Just that rigidity. Right. But with <laughs> some kind of a delight in the idea that the lack of clarity is part of the process. Delight. Embracing. Not necessarily delight, but, you know, kind of... At least acknowledge of it. Sometimes delight. Right. But at least, right. you know, when it's frustrating. Right. The sense right. that it's impossible not to. Right. 
There is actually a delight. I'm glad you said that. The delight for me comes from um, <laughs> it, there is delight in hope. And the hope that I'm referring to now <clears throat> comes from the realization that with uh, an acknowledgement of layers, with an openness to checking, do you mean this? Do you mean that? Do I mean this? Do I mean, is that, the, is, what am I, does it need a gesture? All those things. There is, that's where hope for conflict resolution lies. That's where hope for connection lies. I know that when I was younger and I first began to appreciate just how many things can go, quote unquote, wrong in a communication, I was, um, I was troubled. I, I was, um, I thought, oh my God, this is, what are the odds, you know, <laughs> that this is ever going to go right? You know? But moving through that into a realization that in that case, all you need to do really is check. All you need to do is be curious. All you need to do is be, be interested. All you need to do is question or be open or wait or, or sense into. Uh, that opened up and opens up um, the path towards really connecting and really understanding each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so what it brings up for me is the image of uh, people who are mountain climbing, mm -hmm. and um, they have to have three you know, the, the two hands and two feet, and of the four, uh, three have to be solidly attached someplace. Oh. Fourth moves. You cannot move, you know, certainly all four. <laughs> you cannot move, um, you know, the two hands at the same time. But if you have three of them gripping, then the other one can move, and little by little, um, you move. So that sense of um, establishing safety, uh, in the process of moving ahead. Oh, that's a very interesting. I think I would, <clears throat> something in me wants to push back on the idea of safety. Uh, you certainly, um, the curiosity and awareness and the pause that I was referring to before help make things safer. <clears throat> but to be open and curious and interested may require bravery. Mm -hmm. And Bravery is about recognizing that it isn't safe and doing it anyway and taking care of oneself um, Responding to the threats, you know that come um, And breathing through them and Maybe even taking a leap 
you know, mm -hmm. with, with maybe even detaching <clears throat> the three other uh, uh, extremities, the hands and feet from the, not on a sheer cliff face, but to, to, to leap across something. Mm -hmm. And the something that needs to be left across is very likely our own sense of, of um, <clears throat> some aspect of our own sense of danger, that it has to be okay, not, not to ignore it, but, but to take the risk of being present. Yeah, yeah. But so this is a good moment. I want to, to stay there a little bit. Because one is, uh, one thing that happens is the point you're making. That um, what happened is I used uh, the word safety and an example mm -hmm. that was focused on safety. Mm -hmm. And you went and say, hmm, yeah, but, you know, and. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so it led you to say, you know, there's something else that's actually important to me that the focus on safety does not, you know, capture. And you went to that notion of, at times, really how important it is to not prioritize safety, but to do the leap. Mm. You know, doesn't mean being crazy, but just, mm -hmm. uh, and so you, you, there was a moment where you went into your experience of it and, um, you know, you, you reacted, mm -hmm. responded to the mm -hmm. word safety in order mm -hmm. to find something that was there. Mm. Um, but as I'm listening to you, I'm noticing there is, for me, a dialogue uh, internally uh, when you say, um, you know, um, you know, kind of sometimes you have to be bold or it's not the same thing. I'm thinking, yeah, but it can be done within the context of safety that's not mutually exclusive. <laughs> and so here I am. And so we could easily at this moment be arguing and I could make the point of, no, really, this is important, you know, and this is contained within my concept of safety, and, and so on and so forth. But um, it's really actually very wonderful to notice there is some overlap and there is some expansion, right. you know, as you introduce that. Right. And uh, it's not an either mm -hmm. or, uh, but that really essentially there's an enrichment that just happened. But to notice also the, the inner tendency to kind of, you know, I'm noticing a sense of wanting to hang on for a moment to, no, but my concept, you know, it was okay. And then a sense of, okay, once I've done that and I've gotten to notice that tendency to attach to it, kind of, oh, okay, it's easier to let it go and to follow you where you're going. Yes, and what's beautiful about that is the possibility of sort of coming together on the other side of the two originating points. Because in fact, where I was going to go next, I could feel myself going there, merges beautifully with what you're talking about, which is, I said, if you, are, if you boldly take a step that has a risk, but you are confident you can handle that risk, mm -hmm then the notion of safety is big enough to encompass that taking a risk you know you can handle mm -hmm. is also a safe move. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So that safety is big enough 
you know, a, 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 and expanded the notion of safety. That's right. That's right. An actual uh, people who really climb cliff faces are talking about safety all the time while they're doing something that I would be too scared to start. You're right. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and so that may be the biggest point is that actually in that, yeah, yeah, that, that's expanding that concept of safety right. as opposed to narrowing right. the field mm-hmm. of possible. That's right. Okay. Yeah. A beautiful example. This is, this is an instance of exactly what we're talking about. Um, yeah. So I'm going to just kind of circle back a bit to see, yeah. um, you know, where we started from. Um, whether we got to something which is where you wanted to go with some de- to some degree, or whether something is missing in that. Mm. For me, <clears throat> there may be, I want to make sure that I want to be clear that while our emphasis has been on, uh, I think, on giving me the opportunity to express what I've been thinking about since our last conversation, I want to make sure that it's still truly a conversation, uh, not only as we return to this question, what was I on about at the beginning? Um, I want to make sure that I say as clearly as I can that my reason for wanting to express what I was on about at the beginning of the conversation was to uh, invite a next step together and from you. So so actually my experience of this was very um, participatory. Um, I started with the intention that this was going to be focused on you um, because you had a clear idea of where you wanted to start and uh, to express it. Uh, What I found in the process of actually listening to where you went and following you there is that um, it invited a sense of my own um, resonance, my own dialogue with it, and um, to not only did I actually intervene at times to put in my two cents worth, but actually the meaning of the conversation changed for me. Um, and from something that was going to be um, just um, the part that you wanted to express it turned into, for me, a discussion on what is a conversation that is done with that focusing attitude of paying attention uh, to self, to other, to dialogue, to words, to meaning, to feelings, Um, and actually kind of a a discussion of that as well. And I did not... You know, when they when it dawned on me that we were doing this, I didn't come in with a red flag and say, hey, you know, I'm the meaning for me has changed a little bit. But 
then I felt that how we were talking was very much going in that direction. Um, and so I felt very, very, um, um, very creatively involved in, in what happened. That's just wonderful. And it's reminding me of a conversation that I had with Eugene Gendlin himself. It was on one of the uh, arrangements that Ann Weiser Cornell had made where <clears throat> uh, Gene made himself available and people could call in with a question and actually converse with him. And I asked him a question that he, he uh, struggled with and he didn't like how I had framed the question and it activated in him a, a concern about exactly what we're talking about. about um, he perceived me as wanting to make words rigid and find definitions for things. And then we worked it out. <laughs> and uh, I was trying to actually ask him a little more about what he meant, what, what, what made for him the difference between focusing and some other activity. When, when is one focusing? And in the end, we arrived at a conversation together that was as um, fluid and in which we were each present and curious and open with the other in the way that you and I have been. And he said, that's what I mean by focusing. <laughs> what we're doing right now is what I mean by focusing. That's quite lovely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.